All right, that puts us into our final lesson as we've been doing this very short series uh, from the prophecy of Joel that is uh, a prophecy of good news to people who are in the midst of, of darkness and, and, and suffering. And one of the things that, that this prophecy does at the very end of the book is uh, ultimately answer the question, how are you to have joy and hope? In the midst of darkness and despair, we've seen in our study of the this message in Joel that you have a prophecy in which because of the people's sins, God has sent a locust attack as recorded in the first chapter, which was only going to prepare them for the coming day of the Lord described in chapter two, where God was going to raise up an army against Israel and bring about their their judgment because of their sins. But as we looked at in our last time in Joel 2, God made a promise and said, but there's another day of the Lord coming in which God is going to pour out his spirit in which the people are going to be restored, receive his blessings, be able to be joined to his kingdom, reconciled back to God and enjoying relationship with, again, all that had been taken away was now going to be restored to, to them. And that's why you see in Acts 2 that the apostle Peter stands up and he points to Joel 2 and says, this is that day. That's the moment when in Acts 2, as he proclaims Jesus risen from the dead and that the miraculous event happens, it's a proclamation to all that this is their opportunity to be joined to God and enjoy reconciliation with him. And in, in Joel chapter 3, that idea continues as he's going to talk about how God is restoring the fortunes of his people and, and, and how that's supposed to give them hope. In fact, you will notice in chapter 3 in verse 1 of the prophecy of Joel, it begins by saying, Behold, in those days and at that time... When I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem. And I would like for you to use that verse as that is a great summary of what we saw from chapter 2 verse 15 all the way to the end of chapter 2 where he's talking about God's going to dwell in their midst and they will no longer be put to shame and the blessings of God are going to be poured out. And there's a very long list in chapter 2 of all the things that God is going to do. And chapter 3 begins by kind of just calling that the restoring of the fortunes. So God is going to restore his fortunes to his, his people. And I want you to notice what else he says he's going to do. In verse 2, in speaking about in those days and at that time, he says, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. And I will enter into judgment with them there. On behalf of my people and my heritage, Israel, because they have scattered them among the nations and have divided up my land and have cast lots for my people and have traded a boy for a prostitute and have sold a girl for wine and have drunk it. What are you to me, O Tyre and Sidon and all the regions of Philistia? Are you paying me back for something? If you are paying me back, I will return your payment on your own head swiftly and speedily. I want you to notice that how Joel now rounds out this prophecy is by describing that there was going to be a time of hoping in God's judgment. You will notice that in verse 2 that God describes that he's going to gather all the nations and put them in the valley of 
Jehoshaphat. And scholars are quick to point out there was never a valley of Jehoshaphat. That his name means in speaking of Jehoshaphat just called the Lord has judged. And you see sometimes in the Old Testament scriptures, in those Hebrew scriptures where God will have these decisive outcomes or verdicts or judgments in valleys, and I, I just decided I was going to run out of room, and so I just bailed out on at First Samuel because you can just keep going and going and going of how many times God talks about some kind of judgment or some kind of decisive outcome is occurring in a valley. And you're seeing that idea here is not that you're going to ever be able to take all the nations and fit them in an actual physical valley. We, we clearly have a symbolism that is being used here where God is saying there is a time when I'm going to present the verdict. I'm going to make my decision. In fact, you notice the valley of Jehoshaphat in verse 14 is called the valley of decision or the valley of verdict. And God is saying, I'm going to bring all the nations together and I'm going to bring about this judgment. Now, Here's the big question that I think we should talk about for a minute. Why does God have to enter into judgment? In fact, I think this is a fair question that is often asked in the religious world and often asked by those who don't believe in God. Why does there have to be a judgment? Why does God have to do something like that? Why can't God just love everybody and hugs all around? And why does there have to be this day of wrath, day of judgment, a day of verdict? Why does everybody have to have this day of decision? Well, I want you to notice the picture that is described as the reasoning. You'll notice in verse 2, it says that he's going to enter into judgment on behalf of my people. That God is going to act for his people. And verse 2 and verse 3 describe some of the evil and the wickedness. In fact, there's a lot of things from, from verse uh, 2 through verse 16 in which Joel is describing. Here are the various sins and the various reasons that judgment has to come. And so when we ask the question why there has to be judgment, you have an answer being given by God that says, I have to enter in a decision on behalf of my people. And I want us to see this in two very important ways. Number one, God has to do something about evil. And in fact, I was having a conversation with somebody this morning about this very tension. Is that on one hand, people say, I don't want God to judge. He shouldn't judge anybody. We all should be allowed to do whatever we want to do. But then when there's bad things and evil, what's the first response? Where's God? Why isn't he doing something? And I want you to think about you, you can't have that both ways. <laughs> Those things stand against each other. Either God must act against evil and wickedness and injustice and oppression and do something about it. Or he's going to do absolutely nothing about it. And what you are seeing is God's character is saying, I have to do something about it. And this is the, the hope for the people of God. The hope for the righteous is that God says, I'm going to act. I'm going to do something about it. You'll notice in verse 7, he describes it as, as a, I will return on your own heads what you've done. And I think this is a really important picture. Is that this isn't God saying, you know, I'm just really an angry God. And every once in a while I wake up on the wrong side of the bed and feel like throwing lightning bolts at people because I really don't like them. That's sometimes how God is portrayed. But notice what God is saying. I have to do something 
because you've done something wrong. You've done evil. You've done something that is wicked. And therefore, because you've done something, I have to respond to it. So in a sense, I want us to think about it's not just simply God saying there is this evil in general and God must generally do something about evil, which is true. But I want you to catch that in verse two. It's very personal. You harmed my people and I have to do something about it. And I think we understand that. And you understand that in terms of relationship and someone that is close to you and something bad happens. The response is something has to happen. There must be justice. There must be some kind of outcome. There must be some kind of consequence. It's not right for something bad to happen to someone close to me and something not be done to make it right. We, we have that sense of that. And that's what God is saying about us is that he has to act on behalf of his people. And ultimately, then what you see God saying is that it is ultimately to our great hope to know that he sees and he's ultimately going to act. And that's how this this third chapter begins is describing that the day of judgment is supposed to be a day to look forward to. Now, sometimes we don't think about it like that. Sometimes we think of judgment as, oh, no. But God is saying, that's when I'm going to put things to right. That's when justice is going to come. That's when I'm going to deal with all of this evil and wickedness and all of the things that have been undone. And I'm going to set them right. And I think it's important to note that God is always saying that there is a time coming when he's going to do that. Because sometimes we get frustrated and we look around and go, why, you know, why, why aren't things happening right now? Why doesn't God do something? And God's answer to this repeatedly is there is a time coming. Now, this is, I think you see something like this in the New Testament. I think there's a reason why Revelation 21 has a, a, a place in the hearts of those who know it well. Because you listen to how God speaks about how he's going to care for his people. Revelation 21, verse 3, he says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, And death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning or crying nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. One of the reasons God talks about the future and what is coming is to give his people hope that he's going to bring comfort and he's going to bring restoration. He is going to deal with wickedness. He will deal with injustice. And he's going to act on behalf of his people. If you've been here long enough, you've heard me say many times how often God will tell us your enemies are God's enemies. He's acting on behalf of his people and those who are persecuted for the cause of Christ. God says, I'm going to do something about that. I'm going to respond to that. I'm going to put things to right in, in that way. I want, you, want, want us to read 1 John 5, and I want you to listen to how John words this, because it, it can sound a little strange. Here the Apostle John says, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. 
For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Now, have you ever read that last sentence and wondered what that means? How is it that he says the victory that has overcome the world is our faith? In fact, we even sing the song, faith is the victory that overcomes the world. But have you ever thought, okay, what does that mean? (laughs) How does our faith, the victory, how does our faith overcome the world? What is John driving at when he makes that point? But it's this idea right here that our faith, our belief, and our hope in God about what he is going to do in the future in regards to the world and to the affairs of all things that are that are wrong and evil, and even the things that are in our own lives in which there has been injustice and mistreatment and wrong, God is going to do something about that. That is one of the great pillars of our faith and one of the reasons why God is always trying to talk about future things. Sometimes we, we just recently in our Bible study did Revelation and you've probably heard people summarize Revelation like this. Well, God wins, you know, and so we don't need to study 22 chapters because, you know, well, at the end of the day, God wins. Yeah. Okay, true. But why all the details? You know, he could have saved a lot of space if he just wanted to say God wins and we just move on with it. You know, two words didn't need 22 chapters. Why all the information except to show you can have faith in the future God is going to bring judgment. There is hope in God judging and he judges nations. He judges people and one day will even judge the world in righteousness. And that's what this section here in chapter three is trying to depict is that we are able to overcome. We are able to get through difficulties and suffering and darkness and hardships because we know God is going to act on behalf of his people. This was to be their hope. Chapter one, doom and destruction. They've lost everything. Chapter two says more is coming. And yet he is telling them, you can hope in God, even in those dark days, because I'm going to act on your behalf. In fact, you will see that that's really where he moves to the end of this section. Look, jump down to verse 17 now. In verse 17 here, God says, so, You shall know that I am the Lord, your God, who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain and Jerusalem shall be holy and strangers shall never again pass through it. And in that day, the mountains shall drip sweet wine and the hills shall flow with milk and all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water and a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord water from the valley of Shittim. Egypt shall become a desolation And Edom, a desolate wilderness for the violence done to the people of Judah, because they have shed innocent blood in their land. But Judah shall be inhabited forever and Jerusalem to all generations. I will avenge their blood. Blood I have not avenged for the Lord dwells in Zion. This is really some amazing vivid imagery that you see described here is in verse 17. You're going to know that I am the Lord who who lives in Zion on my holy mountain. And then he gives this image in verse 18. On that day, mountains will drip with sweet wine, hills flowing with milk. 
Stream beds of, of, of Judah are going to flow with water and fountains flowing out of the house of the Lord. Anytime you hear the prophets talk like that, your mind should immediately click into, here is an image of God's blessings just overwhelming and overflowing through the earth. When God acts on behalf of his people, it's going to be just amazing blessings that are flowing. And the way that he likes to describe that is often like, rain and flowing waters and for us these are a little bit strange but you can imagine in ancient times how wonderful it would be to hear the simplicity of hey you know milk is flowing out of mountains and rivers are flowing all that'd be wonderful how easy that would be in that day and time to access that i don't know what a good parallel would be for us because we have everything at our fingertips instantaneously But it is an image that is keen into that idea of God reversing the fortunes and restoring all that was lost. And did you notice where he says all of that is going to begin in verse 18? He says there in verse 18 that this is all going to begin at the house of the Lord in Jerusalem, which again draws us back to what Peter was doing when he's standing up and saying, This is what Joel talked about. And you might remember Acts 1.8 and describing this restoration that it would begin first in Jerusalem, then in Judea, then into Samaria, and then ultimately to the ends of the earth. There is a hope that is being pictured here that God is going to act for his people and the blessings that he is going to have are going to overflow through all of the earth. And In thinking about that imagery, I hope that we get a sense of how God is trying to relate what his good news is all about. That everyone has access to this future hope. That's how Acts 1 is keying off and what, what Peter is trying to tell everybody is, Everyone who calls on the Lord, name of the Lord is going to be saved. Everyone who will come to him and repents and is baptized, receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit, as Acts 2.38 describes, if they will come to the Lord, here is this overwhelming of blessings that God has in store for his people. And it is this great hope of what he is going to do in the future. In fact, notice how he says that in verse 20, that in Judah, but Judah shall be inhabited forever and Jerusalem to all generations. And notice he says there, I will avenge their blood here again. God is acting on behalf of his people. And one of the messages that he keeps telling them is I'm going to restore your fortunes back in chapter two and around uh, verses 15 to 17. He talked about all the things that they had lost. Remember the wording? What? The swarming locust ate, the creeping locust ate, and what the creeping locust ate, the flying locust ate, just over and over again talking about you've lost everything. And God is giving a picture of restoration. Now, I want you to think about how many times God gives that picture of comforting his people in pain. We just read Revelation 21 a few minutes ago, where here is God saying, I'm going to wipe every tear from their eye. And we've always found such comfort in that idea of when we get to be with God for all eternity, that there is the comfort that we are ultimately seeking, that God himself will be the rest and the peace and and the the consolation that, that we are ultimately looking for. And this I put on the screen, Job 42 
that's the, the, the message of the overarching idea of the book of Job. First two chapters of Job. Job, if you could summarize, loses everything. He just loses everything. Everything that you would value in terms of physical things, he loses his children, he loses his wealth, he is absolutely decimated. And of course, the middle of the book is walking through all the ins and outs of, so what does this mean about how God runs the world? And you have Job working through that, you have all the false things that the three friends say about Job and well you must be a terrible person and you must if you just repent God would make things better and you know Job is standing there going I'm I didn't do anything I'm blameless and upright and the the beginning of the book confirms that and you get to the very end of the book of Job you get to Job 42 and there's this really strange reading in which it says, now Job gets blessed. And it will talk about everything that he possessed are all doubled. And then he has 10 children again. And the boom, end of story. And, and you kind of read that and you go, okay, what exactly are you trying to do here in this story? And sometimes people will read that and go, so, you know, what will happen here in this life is, you know, even if you lose everything, God will make sure to give it all back to you before you die. Uh, there's a whole lot of people are going to say that didn't happen. <laughs> I'm still looking for that. This is picturing a comfort that God is going to give at the end of it all. This is trying to symbolize for us the grand reality of what it means to be the people of God. Rather than looking around here and going, okay, well, you're going to have to fix it before we go. How often God is trying to say, at the end, all of this is going to be worth it. To state the point another way, and it's been the the title of the theme, God is more than enough to help us through the difficulties that we face and the loss that we go through. Two chapters in Joel, all of the loss, pain that they are experiencing. And God still at the end is saying, but if you'll turn to me and hope in me, there's a hope of blessing and a hope of restoration. Listen to how... Peter said it. And let me set this up real quick before I I read that to you. A passage that we know very well is two verses earlier. Peter says, the devil is your adversary who's roaming around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And he says, so you need to stand firm in the faith and resist him. And now then Peter says this. And after you have suffered for a little while, And I always want to go, okay, come on. (laughs) God is always saying this life is not going to be easy. There is going to be difficulty. There is going to be times of darkness. You will walk through the valley of the shadow of death. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you into his eternal glory in Christ, will himself, Restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. What God is constantly trying to say is, I have enough to help you through the difficulty. And the means of the help is to look forward to what God has in store for us. A lot of the... the 
how should I say, demoralizing difficulties is when we look at our present circumstances and don't see a hope for what God can do in the future. And God is using Job, Revelation, Peter, Joel, all of these different places in God's word to underscore the fact that God is going to judge the world and he has a great restoration that is awaiting us, a great hope that is ultimately given to us. How often God has to say, I have a a, a treasure that is laid up for you in, in heaven. Peter begins his letter in talking about this is reserved for you, this great inheritance. Why does God have to keep telling us about the future inheritance? Because things are going to be hard now. And hope in the darkness is looking forward to what's coming. And it's why so often the people of God will write in the scriptures things like, I don't consider that the present suffering is worth comparing to the glories that are to come. Is that every single one of them wants us to get a feel of that idea of looking forward to what God has. Joel is ending his prophecy by calling on them to comfort one another and to look for their hope for what God is going to do in the future. You might remember how the writer of Hebrews said this in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 10, where it speaks of who Abraham by faith, he looked forward to a city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Did Abraham ever get to see that building? (laughs) Here he is going, I'm looking forward to this thing. And that wasn't going to be in his lifetime. In fact, the writer of Hebrews says that all of those people of faith died without obtaining the promises. And here is the prophet Joel stepping into that space and saying, friends, that's true of us. That these promises are standing out there in the future and you are looking forward to that eternal hope. Not a hope that just simply rests here. Not looking for just simply a reality right here and right now. But what God has promised that he's going to do for his people in eternity. A final judgment day when God puts all things to right and a full restoration is given. In fact, in chapter 2 and in verse 16 of Joel, he uses this, this phrase... The the Lord will roar from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem and the heavens and the earth quake. But the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. Is that when the world is crumbling down and when it says that the heavens and earth are shaking, the people of God run to their hope in the Lord. And the hope isn't necessarily that God's going to fix it tomorrow or that it'll all be better next week or even next month. But the biggest thing we're looking forward to is what God is going to do for us on the day of judgment when the books are opened and you get to hear the words of God to say, well done, good and faithful servant. Come into this joy that has been prepared for you. Come enjoy the inheritance that has been waiting for you, that's been promised to you.
And Joel is looking forward to that day and saying to them, you put your hope in God and you look forward to that ultimate judgment day and God will set things to right and make that all that we have gone through in this life worth it all. Let's go to God in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we can go through so many hardships in this life and so much pain and so much suffering and so many tears. And Lord, the hope of your future comfort and future blessings can feel so distant. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to see all that you have in store for us. Help us to see the promises of no more pain and no more suffering. And Lord, help us to see that there will be no greater comfort then we get when we get to be with you for all eternity and you wipe every tear from our eyes. And Lord, we pray that this would strengthen our faith. When things go wrong in this life, when we experience these hurts, when we go through trials, when we suffer for your namesake, that we would look forward to the future hope And help us to see what lies ahead. Lord, help us to long for eternity. Help us to long for an eternal relationship with you. Help us to always have in our mind that we are looking forward to heaven. And that we will not be here very long. Help us to see, Lord, that our life is but a vapor. But we cannot begin to understand or imagine what eternity will be like with you. So Lord, help us to be faithful and help us to look forward to that future hope. In Jesus' name, amen. I love the words of Peter. He himself will restore you, confirm you, strengthen you, and establish you. There's a lot that lies ahead that God says that he wants to do for his people. And what a great day it will be to be able to be joined with him for all eternity. We encourage you to think about where you are in your life today, that you would turn away from sin and you would look forward to the promises that God has made for you. That you'd be able to enjoy God face to face in all of his glory and enjoy what God has promised to you. Let your faith be the victory that will overcome the world. Can we help you do that tonight? You can come forward now and let us know while we stand and while we sing.